the year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. G'day, g'day, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid and you're listening to the All Australian Music Stories. This episode is on a leading Sydney band from the 1990s, Finiscad. I'm talking to the drummer, John A. McPhee. Signed to Mushroom Records, Finiscad first burst onto the scene with their hit song, Copper Tone, as well as topping the alternative charts with their debut album, Wider Screen. Sadly for the members of Finiscad, the business side of things took over and mostly that's never going to work out well. This episode highlights the pitfalls associated with trying to crack the big time. I hope you enjoy listening to the career of Finiscad.
So whereabouts did you grow up, Jono? I was born in Hornsby Hospital, grew up in Borkham Hills to the age of about six and uh, moved to the Central Coast, started primary school and um, yeah, so I've been in uh, Yamina and along ever since then, which would have been, what, uh, 1980. So most of your life. Yep, all my life, mate. So what was it about the drums that drew, drew you into a life on the stool? I think, um, you know, in my later years of primary school, I must have been 10 or 11, and I remember receiving um, some tapes for uh, Christmas. It would have been 1985, choose 1985. I think it was Michael Jackson, a thriller album, yeah, the Tears for Fears, big record. I think it had a pink cover, didn't it? Uh, the choose Maybe. 1985 <laughs> did, but um, just the production values and just something resonated inside of me, just the energy of that music and, and just something I was drawn to when... Um, and I think I approached my parents for a drum kit, and they weren't really keen, but uh, it was my grandmother, actually, that backed me up and um, handed over a couple of hundred bucks, and it sort of all started from there, mate. And you're in a few local Central Coast bands growing up? Well, I remember starting high school, I remember taking lessons through my last year of um, primary school, and I was quite keen, and, and uh, I felt I was getting quite good, but... I started high school and, and the core group of friends I had really didn't play music. So, you know, I started getting into sport, you know, surfing and golf and soccer and footy. And it wasn't until I was probably 15, 16 that, um, you know, I started meeting other guys that were playing guitar and, um, and, and it reignited my passion for drums then at the age of, say, 15. So you still had the kid at home and you had to drag it out again? Or? I did, mate. I brushed the cobwebs up yep. and, um, realized, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, high school can be a difficult time and you'll find if there's something that you're good at, it helps form your identity. So yeah, I was, uh, I was keen as, mate, and, uh, found a, a, a passion for music again. And, um, yeah, away I went, mate. Yeah. Started school bands and into it, into a life of I music. I was into it. I, I probably stayed, I, I went to year 11 and 12, you know, a bit, uh, not sure what I wanted to do in my life, but I knew one thing I just loved playing music. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I prob- probably wasted my final two years at school, you know, not concentrating on my studies, but, uh, you know, playing music through the school, through, you know, mates that I went to school with forming uh, school bands. I think in my last year of school, I think I had three bands going. So, yeah, it was, it was forming, as you said, forming your identity through music. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Then when I left school, I, um, I thought maybe music was an avenue to uh, become a teacher. So I went and studied. I studied at the Institute of Music did a diploma in music with a view to become a teacher. But the band I had at the time sort of got serious and um, took me on a, another direction. And that's Finiscade we're talking about? That's right, mate. Yeah. Finiscade, yes. Yep. So you went to the um, the Conservatory of Music, as you said, to, to, to be a teacher. That's right. Um, and obviously that, that gave you a good dr- grounding in being a drummer as well, I'm sure, going from local rock bands to full-on study yeah, that's right. Well, it, it, it was. Uh, I finished school in '92, and where I studied was the. Um, they didn't offer a course in contemporary music. I think that I oh, don't quote me, but it may have been uh, you know the more classical side of things. But um, you know they saw an opportunity to branch out and offer contemporary studies, and that was 1993. So I believe that was either the first or the second year they offered that. So yeah, I, I just thought I, I wanted to be a teacher. You know, I mean. Um, 
you know, of, uh, my parents were fairly supportive, but um, you know, other people were saying, you know, uh, you know, especially teachers I'd had up until that stage said, oh, you'll never make a quid playing music, and and at that stage it was important to me because it, it was a passion, you know. So I sort of convinced myself, oh well, I'll 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 keep playing in bands and doing what I love with a view to become a teacher. The vocalist and rhythm guitarist of Finiscad, Dave Thomas, moves from Brisbane to Sydney and places an ad in the Classifieds, and yourself, Lincoln Beecroft and Bill Copeland answer the ad, all get together, and Finiscad is formed. Is that is that the sort of basis of how it happened? That's exactly how it happened, yeah. Dave went to school in Queensland. He actually went to school and was in the same year as the boys from Powderfinger, and they'd had a, they were already, a, not established at that, well, they were, they were already a band at that time, and... Um, I think he could see the potential in them and he wanted something similar. Um, struggling to put something together in Queensland, in Brisbane. So, yeah, he came to Sydney with a mission. Him and uh, a manager at the time, uh, yeah, put the ad in the classifieds and uh, had a vision on, on exactly what sort of, you know, sort of sound they wanted, that uh, high energy sort of pop, melodic pop. Yeah, the three boys answered the ad and, yeah, away we went. So was that in the old drum media or something like that? That was or? the old drum media, yeah. Street Press, that's right, yep. yeah. Yep, so so with you guys, you, you get together, Is was it the four of you straight up or was a few different combinations or? There was a, there was a different bass player initially, probably for about six months, but that was it. I mean, obviously Dave and the manager auditioned a lot of people and uh, Bill the guitarist was first on the scene and probably followed by me. You know, it, it wasn't something I was really looking for. I was just, you know, looking for the experience of auditioning. I really didn't want to be distracted by joining a band. I just wanted to focus on my studies. But um, you sort of realise, you know, when you're onto a good thing straight away. And, um, yeah, it, it all made sense. I, I knew this was something I wanted to pursue. So you could feel the energy Something was happening from That's that right. first initial jam. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, I, I'd been playing in bands, you know, throughout school and this and that uh, and not achieving the level of musicianship I wanted to. You know, you're often only as good as those that are around you. And then suddenly I was, um, I felt like I was in a, you know, a professional atmosphere with the, with the right guys. And one of the uh, the obvious absolute classics of Finiscad's career is the song Coppertone. Was that written in the first couple of jams or something? Is that that true, or is that just a, a myth that was out there? No, that that's actually true. Um, it, it was probably the only song that was written through just jamming. You know, the rest. You know, we sat down. You know, with a riff and 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 really sort of formulated it. But um, we very rarely went with songs. We we didn't really jam much. And yeah, it, it was. It was sort of one of the first uh you know re rehearsals we had and um yeah yeah it was it was funny how it came about it was just a, a sort of an organic thing yeah the rest is history as they say that's right yep you guys started getting gigs around the place how long before it was you came to the attention of uh the hoodoo gurus manager michael mcmartin it was probably probably about 18 months before we met michael but in saying that you know we, we were you, you, we were gigging at some pretty ordinary pubs. We were working really hard, um, doing a lot of shows, but we attracted interest from all the record companies very quickly. Um, you know, we went from playing pretty ordinary venues to no people to all of a sudden, you know, playing um, still ordinary venues, but, you know, we'd have, you know, there'd be 50-odd guys showing up in suits from all the record companies, whether it be Sony, Warner Brothers. I mean, once uh, once somebody shows some interest in you, I mean, everyone comes out of the woodwork to see what's going on. So, I mean, Michael McMartin sort of wasn't uh, where we thought we'd end up, but um, it was being such a, you know, experienced um, bloke as he is. 
So he was able to open a few doors too that may not have may not have been opened as quickly, I suppose. That's right. He he was he was heavily involved in um, APRA, and uh, I think he put together a mob called the Australian Music Managers Forum or group. And uh, yeah, it's 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 probably not what where we thought we'd end up with him, but um, yeah. It must have felt like you guys were starting to make some progress then, obviously. It, as you said, you had record company interest. So how did that feel as a band? Well, it felt it felt good. I think we were aware that it was the first batch of songs we'd written, 10, 15 songs that we were, you know, we were playing. So we were aware that we were very green and, uh, you know, we really needed uh, time to get our songwriting where we needed it to go, but I think we attracted the attention just on our live performance, you know, just just an energetic, tight band. Well, you guys had a reputation as a as a great live band, and it came out on the record. You know, there's some really high energy songs, but yeah, live and on the festival circuit is where you guys really made a name for yourselves as well. Yeah, we did, we did. Like I say, our live shows what attracted the the attention from record companies initially. I think, um, you know, still in that time period, which was, you know, the early 90s and, and looking at, at bands, Australian bands that had come before us, I mean, that's how you built a name. You got out there and you worked hard and you built a name through your live shows. Um, it's probably a bit different today. You know, you can be exposed in other ways so easily. You don't necessarily have to be out there flogging your live shows for, you know, years on end before you get uh, recognised. It must be a hard slog, and you know that you're you're getting somewhere. But you said you're playing in in dives, and it's you're trying to trying to build a reputation. And how is that on a, a young person, or is it just the exuberance of youth that you're just you're full steam ahead? You don't really care. Yeah, it's hard. I think when you're young, you're not sure what the definition of success is. You really don't know what you want. We were touring up and down the East Coast, living out of a suitcase, and you know we were we were starting to gather fans, and um, you know it's all about building this perception of who you are. But it, but it was hard with no money, you know. You're out there entertaining people that are working during the week and on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, going out and having fun and spending money. Yet you're battling to scrape together enough money to eat, let alone sort of enjoy yourself. So yeah, it's tough. It's tough, you know. You leave your family and your and your friend group behind, and um, you know, yeah. The rock and roll lifestyle isn't isn't always roses for you. That's for sure. No, that's right. I think um, the first the first uh, summer we toured the east coast. Well, actually, we were on our way to Adelaide from Melbourne, and I can't remember where we were in the middle of nowhere, and we were having it was Christmas Day, and we we're having Christmas lunch at a at a dodgy you know twenty four hour servo truck stop. It sort of dawned on me then. Well, you know, this is you've got to do some hard yards, and it dawned on me then that you know I'm probably uh, missing family and friends, and yeah. And it takes that dedication to just keep going. Yeah, it does, mate. Yeah. Like I said, you, you, you can't be prepared what you're in for, you know, um, when you're on a shoestring budget, you know, it definitely makes things harder. So you're almost backpacking, backpacking as oh, a definitely. band around definitely. Australia. Definitely, yes. Yeah. Where did you record the uh, Test Rider EP?
actually recorded it in a studio that Billy Fields had uh, in the King's Cross. The Paradise Studio. Paradise Studio. Yep. Yeah, it was. It, it had a reputation. He, it had so many Aussie bands go through there. It had a great sort of live room. We actually self-funded all our uh, initial EP, and then um, you know once we had some record company interest, we went and recorded it on a budget at Paradise. There's some great songs on that EP, and we'll just get cut straight into it. And I know people are waiting to hear Copper Tone, so we'll just go straight into Copper Tone now. Have a bit of a listen.
Copper Tone was a was a huge hit, especially on radio. But it was a, it was a song of the summer. It topped the alternative charts, and it was uh, it was one of one of the big favourites of Triple J at the time. It also reached the uh, hottest hottest one hundred, and it peaked at forty two. So for a band just starting to make their name to, to even be nominated for the hottest one hundred, let alone gain a spot, that must have been must have been great for you guys. It was like I say, we 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 did an East Coast tour before this happened, uh, supporting you know uh, just a- other local bands wherever we went. And all of a sudden, once you have a song that's on Triple J, you're exposed. You know, I mean, they're nationwide. So all of a sudden, we were doing a headline tour of of the East Coast and and starting to pull people wherever we went, not just our hometown. But we didn't see Coppertone at the time as the song we thought was the standout. I mean, we sent our EP to Triple J, trying to direct them towards a couple of other songs, Lead the Day in particular. We'll have a Um, listen to Lead the Day.
this song was on so many surf videos at the time, and I'm sure it must have been a fan favourite live. Yeah, it was, but, uh, you know, not receiving the exposure of the radio play. But um, it was definitely a reflection of uh, the group of songs we had at the time, obviously, aside from Cobbertone. We definitely saw ourselves as, uh, you know, uh, a high-energy sort of band, and, you know, Coppertone sort of really didn't fit that mould. So a song like Lead the Day got lost in the, the mix of a Coppertone, I suppose. It did. We, we were sort of struggling for identity and, and, and you know, uh, finding a niche market. We were, we were going quite well in Sydney and Melbourne doing our own shows in the inner city, and we were still seen as a sort of an indie band, so to speak. But, uh, you know, the booking agent we were with was getting us, we weren't sure where to place us. You know, we played with everyone from, you know, the the, the sort of the, the commercial, I suppose you could say the commercial triple M kind of bands like Cold Chisel and Screaming Jets. And then again, we were hooking up with alternative bands like Primus and the Jesus Lizard. And we sort of weren't sure where we fit in. You know, I, I think we were confusing ourselves and probably confusing the general public. That's the direction we thought we were heading. We thought we were more sort of, uh, you know, high energy, sort of cutting edge sort of rock. Um, and we really didn't rate Cobbertone at all. It was just, we, we saw it as a filler on the EP. And then all of a sudden, I remember we were um, driving to a gig and Cobbertone's coming on the radio and it was quite surreal. We're thinking, what's going on here? They're playing Cobbertone? But it did make sense all of a sudden when we heard it. It, it, it felt like, uh, you know, it, it was a radio hit. And it did. It sort of captured, you know, that summer sort of vibe, you know, that upbeat, happy kind of uh, feel. Well, to a lot of people, it's the, uh, you hear Copper Tone and it brings back the summer of 96 to them. And it's it's one of those songs that's, it's in the Australian psyche now to a, you know, to older generations. They may not have heard it. it was a, it was a triple J song and, and it was for the kids and whatever age kids are sort of thing. But it was a song that, you know, captured, captured the nation and, and you, you would have seen it yourself every time you're at the festivals or you, you're on the main stages of big day out and, and places like this and you rip into copper tone, the crowd just went off. Yeah, it's, it is a good feeling when you uh, play live and, uh, you know, people are identifying with the song and singing along. And like I say, it gives you, Triple J gives you the ability to go anywhere in the country and people recognise your song. It's giving you nationwide airplay. You mentioned that you're driving along and you you heard Coppertone. Were you guys all together at the, the first time you heard it or you're by yourself or? Uh, from memory, the first time, I think we might have been, you know, by ourselves and we were phoning each other up, a bit confused as to what was going on because we thought they were going to play Lead the Day. But, uh, yeah, it came as a bit of a shock. You know, it wasn't the, the, the direction we thought we were going to take. And it sort of did confuse us and, and well, not didn't confuse us, but it influenced the way we started to write then. We thought, all right, this is us, you know. We, we were trying to uh, not write the next copper tone, but, you know, come up with songs that were in that similar vein. Initially, we thought we were going to be more of a hard rock band, bands that were appearing at the time, maybe like a Grinspoon and your Living End were coming out of the – we thought we were going to take that sort of direction. And, you know, we thought, oh, well, here we go. This is something a little bit different to maybe some of the bands that were playing. So, we, you know, we sort of went with that poppy, swingy kind of vibe. And I'm sure you had record company influences – 
the A&R guys are wanting the next copper tone out of you and they're sort of saying, well, this is this is the approach that we need to take and we need to continue and give me copper tone A, B and C versions and they're paying the bills. So that's, I suppose that's the hard part as well. You know, being young, being influenced and not sort of being able to stand your own ground. Yeah, that's true. You, you, in a way, you feel it's all about trying to find the right producer to help you, you know, achieve you know what the sound is you're trying to get trying to get it out of your head and you know onto record and that was a real challenge for us just trying to find the right people to work with so you guys signed with mushroom records is that right that's right yep one of the biggest names in australian music mushroom records michael gudinski that must have been fantastic having the uh the recognition from such an established label keen for you guys yeah that's right i mean you look back through the 80s and just about every band that had some sort of success in australia um was on the mushroom label we mean we had interest from all the other record companies to sign sort of worldwide deals but we just wanted to sign for australia only and try and nail that market first and then maybe shop ourselves overseas well that's the that's the direction the mushroom saw for us um you know, he's such a, a likeable character, Michael Gidinski, and, um, you know, it was it was hard to go past working with him. So when you met Gidinski, did you have that sort of moment when you're shaking hands or whatever going, wow, this is Gidinski, I'm, I'm now with the big players here? Yeah, it's funny, we, you meet, the, you know, you meet these big players in the, uh, the A&R guys in the record industry, and, you know, they have the ability to really connect with you, you know, because essentially they're music fans. So, you know, like I say, we were doing gigs essentially to guys in suits. You're meeting us after the show and, you know, they're coming up and, and really connecting with us. I mean, we were young and green and they say, oh, you play like, you know, such and such or you play like uh, the drummer in my favourite band and, and they connect with you and, you know, so um, you break down a lot of barriers. You stop seeing them as businessmen and you see them as music fans. As you said, you guys created a bit of a bidding war between these record labels. How hard was it to decide to go with Mushroom? It was terribly hard. It, it, it really took us, it took us 18 months. You know, we had, uh, you know, sort of the number one music lawyer in the time, Brett Oaten, working for us. And it was it was a really long time, and and it it probably took an effect on us. Instead of getting on with you know writing and playing the music, we were distracted about uh, who to sign with and 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 all the the finer details of what goes on. Looking back, there's a lot to be said for you know sort of keeping that independence, and that was something we were looking at. We were approached by a couple of managers that that sort of said, look, don't sign with the record companies. You know, I'll invest in you, and um, you know, we'll keep it simple and. But uh, it, it's it's hard when you're young to uh, you know grasp what's going on and you know everyone wants a piece of you and uh, and hindsight has twenty twenty vision, doesn't it? So. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. <laughs> exactly, yeah, it yeah. really is. You 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 know you you can look back at uh, and say woulda shoulda coulda. You know it, it was a distraction for us. You know ideally it, it, we you know if, if we could have kept self funding ourselves, I think um, you know we we might have been better off. It's hard to remember now pre-internet, but this is all pre-internet. So this is all happening and it's all on word of mouth. And and, and you mentioned before about phone calls and mobile phones weren't really about. You know, no, it, no. If you had a mobile phone, you were, you know, you're a real estate agent or something like that. So yeah, that's right. To to build your reputation, it was it was built on uh yeah, blood, sweat, and tears, pretty much. It was it was a different time. It was a different time. You know, it's so easy to get exposure now. And you, you mentioned there you, you played with some heavy hitters. Did two tours of Midnight Oil up the East Coast? Yeah, that's right. They sort of re- resurrected themselves. I can't think what the album was called. A, a Thousand Watt RSL, I think it was. 
that was a big tour for us. Yeah, and we we also sort of got on the back of the Hoodoo Gurus, and that was probably our crowd. That was probably where we were at. It definitely uh, it got us the, the the fan base that we wanted. Yeah. And another another big hitter that you played with was the uh, the Tea Party. That's right. Yeah, that that sort of really was a part of a, a festival we were on at the time. Not that we sort of really fitted the mould of their music, but um, you know that sort of got us into interstate festivals and exposed us to a whole new crowd. And talking about festivals, you guys played on played on all of them: Big Day Out, Home Bake. So yeah, again, it must have been a good feeling. Because it was the time of the festival, the you know, the the hard rockin' festivals. You know, you have your music now that's sort of your your DJ type type festivals. But back then, it was it was the best bands, best bands from Australia, best bands from overseas, all on the one day. It was yeah, it was a great music scene. It, it was good for local bands because it gave uh, you know local bands an opportunity to be exposed to a crowd they wouldn't necessarily uh, play in front of due to the fact that we're riding the coattails of these international bands. It was also a time where TV was a bit different. You know, the pay TV stations had just sort of come out and, and Channel V was was really championing Australian music. And then you also had shows like Recovery and Ground Zero. Finney Scad were, were on that. How was it like playing live television? It, it was an exciting time because up until sort of that point, you know, you, you go back 10 years prior and you sort of had Countdown. Um, and uh, in conjunction with Mushroom Music, forming Countdown suddenly um, exposed and got all these Australian bands popular. So it was an exciting time to think that there was, you know, an outlet like um, music television. Once again, I think that's probably something that's lost now due to the fact that you've got exposure on um, on the internet. What was it like once the cameras rolled? It must have been a bit of a nerve-wracking experience not being exposed to, to live television and then thrown into that situation. Well, it, recovery was recorded first thing in the morning, and from memory, it was pre-recorded. So I can remember the couple of times we were on there. You know, you'd you'd be playing a gig in Melbourne on the Friday night, and you'd be at uh, at the recovery television studio at six o'clock in the morning. So yeah, that was different. You know, it's hard to get up for a high energy gig. You know, doing it in a in a in in an atmosphere with cameras on you first thing in the morning definitely a big challenge but um like i say it was an exciting time it's a shame that there isn't you know a saturday morning music show that's purely australian so mushroom records send finiscad to new york to record your debut album talk us through the decision that was made to head to america it was a big decision uh you know mushroom at the time had signed a uh probably close to a dozen bands that were in a similar mold to us. You know, we uh, we thought we were a band that would build over a couple of albums, but um, Gadinsky really pushed for us and, and was really wanted to, to go for a big-budget producer and try and, you know, strike while the iron was hot and, and, and get us on our first album. Um, in hindsight, uh, you know, I think we probably should have stayed in Sydney and recorded. There was plenty of good young producers there at the time, but, um, you know... It was a vision Mushroom had, and um, it was a great experience to go overseas and, and work with a big-name producer. And once again, it'd be hard to say no to Gadinsky, who's saying, I want you guys to be over here in America. Um, the producer was uh, John John Agnello. That's correct. And he, um, he, he'd produced bands like... And uh, he, he produced uh, bands such as Buffalo Tom and Red Cross and really big-name bands in America that had an international reputation. So it would have been hard to turn something like that down. Well, it was. Um, like I touched on earlier, we, you know, we had opportunities to sign sort of um, 
you know, uh, bigger contracts with the likes of Warner Brothers and Sony and even BMG. But we signed an Australian-only deal with Mushroom, and then we thought we'd chop ourselves around overseas. So, I mean, using a big-name producer overseas, you know, they're connected with the bigger record companies over there. So, you know, not only, you know, working with someone of his experience, but, um, you know, the leads and the contacts that he had I mean, we played live shows over there with, you know, A&R guys from record companies coming to check us out. So, you know, it was an exciting time in saying that it's very hard to um, break into an American market for every style of the style of music that you think you're offering. You know, they've got, uh, you know, they've got 10 of their own. Yeah, and plus those those bands have already been making a name for themselves. They've got fans of friends and family and you guys know nobody. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. You're really starting from scratch. And, you know, to make an impact overseas, unless you have a standout single, you know, it, it takes a long time. And you said you played some gigs over there. What what sort of gigs? Just a, a showcase gigs for, um, you know, A&R guys, record company people. So obviously we had no fan base over there. So um, once again, it was just sort of showcasing ourselves, looking to... Um, you know, get a distribution deal. We were there for two months, so it wasn't wasn't a fly in, fly out. Mushroom really took their time with you guys over there, so they they wanted to nail it. They did. You know, our our manager uh, shared an office with um, another high profile uh, uh, American music manager that uh, you know was responsible for uh, putting putting the Lollapalooza tour together years earlier. You know, that was a big opportunity. You know, we really wanted to form a a relationship with him. And our producer's wife worked for, off the top of my head, I can't think, one of the the, the big record companies over there. So, um, you know, it was sort of of some good leads for us. And two months recording, you must have immersed yourself a little bit into the culture of America there, being a local there for two months. Yeah, that's right. It was uh, an eye-opening experience being so young, you know, but uh, once again, it's a whole different ballgame over there. probably similar to what you've got now trying to expose yourself on youtube you know you had an mtv over there and you really you know i mean you it was about the music but it was also about uh, a visual and what kind of image you had and you're talking big budget when you're um doing video clips that uh, stand up to an international standard yeah, no, look, it, it was a great experience, um, but like I say, it's it's a whole different ball game when you're trying to crack an American market. Wider Screen is a fantastic album, and it features some awesome songs. The first few notes of the opening song, Just a Show, indicate to the listener what, what sort of ride you're in for.
was a great song just to show. It was. Um, like I said, we really prided, prided ourselves on our, our live show and really wanted to um, capture that in a recording. And I think that's what we did, you know. Like you say, right from the outset, you know, the, the album sort of hits you in the face. In the 1997 ARIA Awards, Finney Skatter nominated two times for the Best New Talent and for the Best Breakthrough Single for Coppertone. Your other nominees included Jebediah, Gina G, Mark Seymour, and with the Super Jesus taking out both categories. That's a fair list to be mentioned in. Yeah, it was great. It, it, it really was, uh, you know, an exciting time for, uh, you know, young Australian bands. But things were changing, you know, the, uh, the way recordings and the way uh, bands and music were um, promoted was on the verge of changing. At that stage, like you said, there was no internet. But yeah, it, 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 it was an exciting time. There were a lot of good bands around. Well, that was the year that Savage Garden virtually won everything. So a high-energy band such as yourselves that showed what the market was, where the market was at, and you guys were still cutting through. So you, you were a band that was building, that's for sure. We were very much at that time, probably similar to, you know, Jebediah and Super Jesus and the other bands that were around at the time, whether it was the Grinspoons or Living Ends. We were still sort of considered alternative music, but we were, um, you know, we were trying to be produced to enter that pop market, which is hard to do for a rock band. It was, it, it, it was a big challenge. Well, the, uh, the first single, and it was, a, it was the time of the CD single, they're long gone now, but the first CD single released by Mushroom off that album was Furious.
again, an- another great song. It was a great song. You know, it, it, it wasn't probably a good representation of the band. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure when you're signed to a major label. You know, the focus is on getting your music on the radio. You know, once again, you know, there's you couldn't self-promote like you can these days by putting things on YouTube or the internet. So the radio was your means to promoting yourself. And, um, you know, we were sort of seen as a band that uh, needed radio exposure. And like you said before, that's probably a song that's in the, the copper tone style, a bit softer, not as not as hard hitting. So again, it would have been the record companies or the A&R guys that said, this is the song that's that we're releasing and you guys wouldn't have had much of a say in it anyway. Well, ultimately, you know, I think if the band puts their foot down, you can, you know, you can have the ultimate say on what happens. But uh, like I say, um, it's hard to expose yourself any other way at that time in the early 90s, you know, aside from radio. The next single released was uh, about a superhero of sorts, Sonic Boy, and a song that just charges from start to finish. Uh, single wasn't as well received as Coppertone was so um, you know we were sort of back to you know what we believe we're about 
which was that high energy kind of uh, uh, rock pop, I suppose, furious, you know, for, sort of more sat in the ca- category of, 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 of not really a ballad, but it, it wasn't high energy like the rest of our song. So, you know, we were really struggling at that stage to um, understand what we were, what our identity was. So we decided to drop a third single that was more about a truer representation of our live show. And Sonic Boy, it's got, it's got a, a feel to it that just brings you up, that's for sure. Well, a big part of how we saw ourselves was uh, an, an upbeat, positive kind of band. Like I say, it was a, a, a more truer representation of, uh, I think, what we were about at the time. Shows Dave as a singer as well. He was a fantastic singer, or he is a fantastic singer. Yeah, he was. He was, uh, you know, he, he was the guy that put the band together in the first place and probably the driving force behind the band. And, uh, you know, it, looking for t- success of, of other bands, you really need a distinct sound, and I think that often comes from the singer. And one thing I always notice about Finney's Scat is you guys never backed him up much. There was there was always microphones there, but um, Lincoln and Lincoln and Bill seemed to head towards the mic, and then they would quickly retreat. <laughs> Did they have a phobia about backing up, or they just didn't didn't have the confidence in their voices? I think it was a mixture of the energy of the music required the concentration on playing the instruments, and to a certain extent, yes, you know, I think we were green and we were learning our craft. But uh, the live show was was so high energy and fast paced. Um, you know, it was. It was hard to get backup vocals in there. And as we mentioned before, Finiscad had a uh, a great reputation live. We mentioned before some of the tours that you guys were with, such as Midnight Oil. Did you get um, much support from these guys, these older bands, the elder statesmen? Did you guys get encouragement from these guys, or was it a bit of a bit of a slog? Like support bands don't get the best production values given to them. Did you find that, or did you you guys you guys were given given a bit of a kick along? Yeah, not at all. Midnight Oil in particular were very. Supportive, Jim Magini and Rob Hurst, particularly. You know, they were all about giving, they gave us a lot of advice, whether it was um, musical or songwriting advice or just to uh, how to handle handle the industry and try and make the right uh, managerial decisions. But um, I think sometimes we played with a few overseas acts, you probably wouldn't get the best uh, uh, production. But um, no, definitely when we played with Australian bands, there was a sense of camaraderie and uh, mateship, definitely. And as a fellow drummer, well, you would have looked at Rob Hurst as one of the the best drummers Australia's ever had. Oh, it was a fantastic experience to play with him. I think the second time we toured with Midnight Oil, for some reason, Rob wasn't playing, whether that was due to illness. And we had uh, Paul Hester from um, Crowd House play drums. And I mean, that's big shoes to fill playing for Rob Hurst. So... um, you know, to to see Hester it's play, still not a bad feeling drummer, is it? Oh, fantastic drummer, and um, you know that was uh, it's something I always look back on with fond memories. Yeah, sad how everything turned out, but as you said, you've got that memory of watching someone like Paul Hester filling in for for Rob Hurst. You know, it's it's stuff that I'm sure when you first picked up the drumsticks, you you didn't imagine that's where you'd be one day. I still, I, I still uh, look back on my uh, experience. I remember talking to Paul after a show we did in Adelaide. As you know, Power and the Passion has a drum solo in it and uh, just talking about uh, how he managed to fill those shoes and, and pull it off. You know, it's uh, big shoes to fill and, um, you know, he was a fantastic guy. A great loss, definitely. The next single released for, for Finney Scad off the, off the wider screen album was It's Not Real. And again, that, that brings the high energy of you guys. And is that more symbolic of the sound that you guys thought you were, you were going to have? 
It's it's not real. Probably should have been the second single after Coppertone. It was very well received. It was received well, not just with the Triple J fans, but on commercial radio as well. And it was a true representation of what we were trying to achieve. You know, it had a mixture of um, that sort of pop sensibility, but it was also, you know, it, it, it was it was a it was a real rock song as well. That was the final single we released and um, it sort of gave us a lot of confidence going into the songwriting process for the next album. We sort of felt like that was probably the direction we wanted to take. 
So we'll listen to a few more songs off the widescreen album. One of my favourites is a song called Robotic. This is a quirky song and I, I often, and this is meant as a compliment, I often think of Elvis Costello when I listen to that song. Uh, I don't know if it's a watching the detectives type thing and, and it doesn't sound like that song. It's just got that quirkiness to it. Yeah, it does. Um, once again, we were trying to uh, come up with a, a mixture of uh, pop sensibility but uh, offering something different. It was a good song, you know. It, it, it was uh, labelled at one stage as a potential sing single, but probably didn't have the lyrical content that we needed. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's a song that we were sort of uh, influenced in writing when we were overseas. So that was written in the states. Well, it was uh, it was written beforehand, but um, it, it sort of came to life while we were um, in pre production overseas. Yeah. So when you went to the States, did you did you have a clear direction of what songs were going on the album or did you, you create a few songs over there? We were definitely adamant of the songs that were going on the album. We didn't create any over there. But, um, you know, being a young band, um, you know, we needed the the help of a good producer. And that's why we went over there. It's it's easy to, to – you can get your songs to a certain point. Often you need a fresh set of ears and someone with that, you know, uh, producing experience to help you out, um, you know, particularly the bridge part of songs. You know, that can be really where a, a, a pop song in particular can be made or break. And, um, yeah, right, I think we were a band just being so young and on our first record that really needed some direction. And and once again, that was the decision why to go with a, a quite an experienced producer. And with John, you, you found that, did you? We found that um, you know he'd he'd had he'd had success with uh, you know uh, bands over there, Dinosaur Junior and Buffalo Tom. But in saying that, I, I think uh, we we could have done just as well, you know, staying in Sydney, you know, working with young up and coming producers. 
Because who produced the Test Rider EP? The Test Rider EP was actually co-produced by Lachlan Magoo Gould, who was responsible at the time for doing Regurgitator's Unit album. And he was probably who we should have stuck with. I think he may have recorded 1000 Watt RSL with Midnight Oil, went on to have some success and perhaps win an aria for that. But it was also co-produced with an American producer, uh, singer-songwriter from a band from Seattle called The Posies. That was a great experience. Like I say, Lachlan Magoogled was probably who we should have stuck with, I think. It's one of those things that it can't be taken off you guys. Spent two months in the States recording an album that bands could only dream of that sort of that sort of an experience. That's right. When you're um you know, when you I mean the upside of, of signing with a major label is you know, they can provide opportunity that perhaps when you stay independent that you can't. Which necessarily isn't always a good thing. But um you, it, it's hard to knock back opportunities like that, yeah. And as, we, as we've mentioned, Finney Skat is a high-energy band and there's plenty of songs that rock along on wider screen. One that kicks back a little bit is Can't Explain.
I used to hear Can't Explain a lot of times on different sports shows, just used as a backing instrumental, and, and you'd think, I know that song, and then it had come back to you, it was Can't Explain. Yeah, once again, um, you know, you can, uh, through press releases and, and what other avenues you have to sell what song you think is going to work it doesn't always necessarily have success so um you know television you know or, or radio stations you know often often uh, will pick something that you didn't recognize as a standout song and can't explain was probably one of those and did you ever have those moments of because i know sports world was very heavily used on sports world as as going into ads or coming out of ad breaks did you ever have that moment of thinking I know that song, <laughs> and yeah. it's yours. I remember watching um, the AFL Grand Final. I think it was 1998, sitting with a bunch of friends at home. And, um, you know, we all got up and did our thing at half time. And um, I can't think what song it was of ours that was playing in the background. And, uh, yeah, it was quite surreal, the sense of familiarity without being able to put your finger on it. And then we realised what was going on. They were playing Finnish Gat at half time. And, again, that's something that you can't eat something like that. You can't get a monetary feel on something like that. But it's something that can never be taken from you. No, that's right. The experiences like that are, are fantastic. And uh, it's good to see uh, your music played you know up against sport or um you know uh, things you didn't assume it would be you know relevant to when you wrote the song another song that is really melodic but it's still got that heavier feel is redefine i love the opening drums to this song and it's just it just tells you what you're in for from the from the opening beat redefined uh was probably a song uh, that i thought along with Lead the Day, was the direction I wanted the band to take. Um, I had bands after Finney Scad that chose this direction, more sort of hard-edged kind of uh, hard rock. But it was definitely a fun song to play, and it was often a song that we'd uh, open our shows with. Well, it'd get everyone in the mood, that's for sure. It was. It would definitely, uh, you know, uh, let people know that, uh, you know, we were here. We'd arrived and we were a presence, yeah. Get out of your seat. There'd be no sitting down tonight. <laughs>
Small Time, Big Time. It's another song that takes and it just builds and builds to the listener on this sonic journey. Dave is a great vocalist and again, it's highlighted on this song. Yeah, it is. In hindsight, I'm not sure what the song was about, but it, you know, I, I listen to the song now and I think it was probably a representation of where we're at. You know, we'd gone from this, uh, you know, inner city sort of indie band and, um, you know, all of a sudden we were we were looking for that uh, big sort of commercial radio hit. Not that this was necessarily the song, but uh, perhaps the, uh, you know, the meaning behind the song might have sort of represented where we were at at the time. And it's a song that's got many layers to it and it, it brings you up and takes you down. And, and again, it shows the musicianship of Finiscade to me. A, a song like this is not just your straight 12-bar blues or not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's, it shows that you guys had, had grown as musicians. Dynamically, it was a great song. And I think it was probably a, a good guide to uh, the kind of songs that we were probably going to um, showcase on our, on our next record. I don't want to dirty the music talk with uh, conversations about the music business, but unfortunately, in the uh, when we're talking about Finiscad, the music business comes into it um, and and comes into the demise of Finiscad. While being signed to Mushroom Records initially was successful, the massive sale of Mushroom by Gidinski to Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation really spelt the death knell for, for Finiscad and a lot of bands at that time, including other acts such as the Mavises and Pollyanna. This was one of the biggest shake-ups in the recording industry in Australia, and the Bean Counters came in and they decided that to make the books look better, all the lower-level bands, the emerging bands that Gidinski had signed, aiming to, to build these bands, to, to the accountants, you guys just weren't what they're after. It was probably led to the demise of not only Finiscad, but you know all these other bands you're talking about. There could have been close to a dozen bands that were signed to Mushroom at the time through a um, a side label called Bark Records. I think Gadinsky had a long term plan. You know, we were a band that needed to be groomed over probably a two to three album sort of period which, you know, could have taken minimum probably a five-year period 
along with the other bands that he signed at the time, we were all young and in our early 20s. We headed overseas to record the record after spending 18 months building up a relationship with Gadinsky and his staff. When we were overseas, Gadinsky decided to um, sell his majority share in the company to News Limited and focus on uh, promoting and bringing out uh, high-profile overseas acts through Frontier Touring. So by the time we'd come back from um, New York with what we thought was a great record, there was a whole new staff, an A&R running Mushroom that didn't see it the same way. And uh, they had different plans for what the future of Mushroom was. And, um, you know, although they still saw us as a possible success, it was hard after building up a relationship, you know, over, you know, probably a two to three year period with um, uh, Gadinsky and all his staff that were keen to work for us. Suddenly we were um, faced with all these new people that, um, you know, didn't feel the same way about us. And it must have been hard. You're working with people that got you and then all of a sudden, as you said, you had no relationship with this new new bunch of people and, and they didn't get you as the lot, the last lot had got you and, yeah, that must have been hard for the confidence. Well, we'd spent, uh, you know, we'd spent a, a lot of money promoting ourselves and going overseas and recording this big budget record and, um, you know, the, the, the new staff just couldn't see the sense in that and uh, it was like starting from scratch again but um, with a big uh, debt against our name, which, uh, which made it hard. Yeah, as I said, it must have been hard to come back to that environment of uncertainty. It was definitely, um, you know, it was definitely a hard time. You take your time as a young person, as a band, and, you know, you listen to it, you take advice from uh, people, and you tread very carefully to sign the right kind of deal and be aware that, um, you know, there's a, a lot of traps in the music industry, especially through management. And you do everything you can to avoid that, and that's what we thought we'd done. We thought we'd sign with the right company and we're doing the, the right things only to have it all sort of taken away from us. So, yeah, there would have been bands who had seen Finiscad riding this wave of success and that, you know, they were they were the independent type bands that weren't getting much of a leg up. I'm not saying they would have been jealous of you guys, but maybe envious of what the success that you guys were getting, not realising that it's a house of cards, really. It's, it's built up and can be pulled away at any stage. That's right. We wanted to avoid that. There'd be bands, Australian bands that had come before us. Off the top of my head, I think there was a couple of high-profile well, there was, they weren't high profile, but there's a couple of rock bands in Sydney that came before us. Um, I think Mantissa was another, was one band. Scary Mother was perhaps another that went overseas and, um, spent incredible amounts of money on production and, um, it didn't have the success that they thought. And that's the last thing we wanted to be. And all of a sudden, that's what we'd become. Um, you know, I think the, not just other bands, but the industry was looking at us just scratching their heads thinking, you know, what, what, what is this band thinking? And, you know, spending an incredible amount of money before having achieved any real success, you know, and, and, and obviously, yeah, you know, uh, the bean counters look at this kind of thing and, um, you know, they probably have the ultimate decision on what goes on. And ultimately the the band was dropped from uh, the record company. We'll get off the negative business side of things and get back to the music because that's what it's about. And the legacy that Finiscat has left with, with the music, a great EP, Test Rider, and a fantastic album in Wider Screen. One of my favourite songs on Wider Screen is More of the Same.
So obviously the ending with Mushroom wasn't wasn't what you guys had wanted and it certainly wasn't ideal. But one achievement that you guys got out of Mushroom Records and another feather in your cap was you were one of the new generation bands playing at the Mushroom 25th live anniversary concert at um at the MCG. You know, people such as Jimmy Barnes, NXS, Paul Kelly, Kylie Minogue, Billy Thorpe and Finney Scads amongst that crew. Must have been one of those sort of pinch yourself moments to see if you were dreaming at times. Definitely. I mean, um goes without saying, you know, the MCG, you know, the hallowed turf of, of the G will go down as history as probably one of the great um, sporting venues, in my opinion, you know, probably in the world. I mean, it doesn't have worldwide recognition, but um, from an Australian standpoint, um, to have the ability to play a venue like that wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for you know, the Mushroom 25th anniversary. And what's it like? You're sitting on the on the drum kit, looking out at the MCG, at the crowd. Must have been a surreal feeling. It sure was. You know, you could, uh, you know, only uh, try and imagine what it would be like, you know, for the big supergroups of the world, you know, playing Wembley Stadiums and Madison Square Gardens, you know, from an Australian perspective, I suppose, you know, to have a concert at the MCG would stack up to something like that. A great experience, yeah. And again, it showed where you were with Gadinsky. For him to put you guys on that bill, obviously you were you were one of the chosen ones at that stage. He had a lot of confidence in us and, um, you know, at, at that stage, uh, you know, everything was looking good for the future. But, you know, to mingle and be a part of that, um, you know, was an exciting time. You know, we felt at that stage that we were, we were relevant and we were fitting into the culture of not only Mushroom, but, um, you know, the, the, the success of Australian bands that had come before us, yeah. I, I think we believed at the time, you, we knew we were a, a band that was going to build and, um, you know, with uh, without having that standout real commercial single, you know, I think our main focus was on, you know, just having an album without having any filler songs there. And I mean, it was, you know, at, at that stage too, um, albums were still relevant. It, it wasn't about just one song. We were trying to record a group of songs. You know, that was something that was important to us and we were trying to achieve, yeah. Another another highlight for, for Finney Scad was you did the uh, Live at the Wireless on Triple J. Uh, again, that sort of exposure, that national exposure for you guys must have been, must have been awesome. Yeah, from um, memory at the time, that was, uh, uh, I mean, don't quote me on that, but I thought it was a relatively new thing that Triple J were doing. And in saying that, then, you know, they've continued to do that over the years and take it to a whole new level. But yeah, once again, you know, with, without Triple J, even still today, but particularly back in the early 90s, it was, you know, national exposure. So, I mean, without Triple J, you know, we, we really wouldn't have existed. And it's probably relevant with a lot of bands that went on to have success. You know, that was uh, sort of the starting point, being accepted by Triple J. And I think Finnish Scat also crossed over i think one time what a scream was album of the week on triple j and then a couple of weeks later it was album of the week on uh triple m but the jays don't like that sort of stuff when the the big time commercial stations start to like you then they don't start to like you and you know it's a, it's a balancing act yeah it is it's, it's very hard to control that you know it, quite often you can um 
especially it really is a small industry you know you can have sometimes i mean not people working against you but you can you've you've got to you know you've got to choose those that you want to work with and um you know it can leave a lot of people that you're not working with disgruntled but uh, that was a problem we faced you know um you know we were being played by triple j and triple m at the same time and not sure where we fitted in you know bands that sort of uh, accepted one way or the other at least it's a clear on what direction you want to take i mean once again you've got to be happy that um you know triple m and um you know the commercial stations pick up your uh music to expose you to a whole new you know, fan base uh, but at the same time i think the real music fans were uh, triple j listeners yeah for sure yeah, so it's a, it's a fine balancing act that, again, you guys don't have any say in it. It's- no, that's right. That's right. You, I mean, you you work hard in your early years when you're putting your band together of, um, you know, building, uh, you know, a fan base that uh, prides themselves on being down with the band from day one and, and creating that sort of independent status. And, and suddenly those fans feel like it's being taken away from them when you attain commercial success. You know, by no means is it selling out. You don't have control over that. You know, it's just, uh, you know, the, the, the direction you take. And once again, um, radio was the main form of exposure in the early 90s. I've saved one of my favourite Finnish Scad songs to last. It's the title track of the album, Wider Screen. That song is a lost classic. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, once again, we weren't sure that it was a standout or it was a single but, um, you know, it was uh, definitely a strong album track. It became the uh, the title of the, the record and, um, you know, a good representation of uh, where we were at again.
And as we'd mentioned before, Finney Skate was before the internet generation. It's it's hard for young kids to, to these days to realise there was any such thing, but it was only 20 years ago that there was no internet and everything was word of mouth. But if you if you go onto some of the YouTube clips of Finiscad on the net now, the level of love from the fans, it's there. You guys had an impact on people, so it must must be satisfying knowing that you were a band that you know you may not have reached the heights that you wanted to, but at the same time there's there's a million bands that start out all around the world that never get to the heights that you guys got to anyway. So there's gotta be some satisfaction in that level of achievement. I think um, we were fortunate when the album was released. It was the start of the summer, and the um, the festival circuit was really gaining momentum, particularly through the big day out and um, home bake. It, it was good timing for us, and yeah, it, it was uh, you know it, it, it was a good time for you know new Australian music having ex- exposure through the festival scene, and um, everybody that goes to festivals can remember the first one they were at and, um, you know, the experiences they had and, you know, I'm often running into people that can remember seeing Finiscad for the first time and, you know, seeing us at a festival. It was a good time. So you guys definitely had an impact on the, on the Australian music scene in that it was brief, but you guys shone brightly for the moment that you were there, that's for sure. Yeah, we did. We we had a lot of good experiences, and it just uh, it felt good to uh, you know contribute to uh, and be a part of so much good Australian music that was around at the time. And what are you doing these days? Are you uh, you still playing music? Yeah, I very much still have a passion for music. You know, I have uh, I have kids now that uh, showing a passion for music. So um, you know, uh, any time I get to, to to play, often is um, including them. But yeah, uh, you know, play. I think anyone that has uh, a, a, the ability to be on stage should be, and I uh, still take advantage of that whenever I can, filling in for for bands. And I mean, just a. I think it's important for, for, for everybody to have some sort of creative outlet and, you know, I'll uh, always be grateful for, uh, you know, the experiences I've had and uh, and continue to have through music. I think it's, uh, you know, it's an important thing to have. Um, I've noticed uh, through my uh, high school experience so much emphasis on sport, but, um, you know, it's uh, it's really good to, if, if people can have a creative outlet as well. Good stuff, Jono. Thanks for your time, mate. Good on you, Sheldon. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening, and thanks Jono for your time, and thanks to Finiscad for the music. If you enjoyed the episode, please click subscribe, and if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes, that would be unreal. If you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can email me at mycoast2 at bigpond.com. That's M-Y-C-O-A-S-T, the number two, at bigpond.com. Or like our Facebook page at All Australian Music Stories. I'd like to thank you again for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, hail, hail, Australian rock and roll. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written, produced and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, hit it girl. I've got something to tell you About a place that I've been to And now, now I know